Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our Associate Pastor of Administration, Scott Knox. This morning's message is going to be something much like happened to me many years ago. Uh, I was here in Texas, and an old friend invited me to go fly in his plane, little bitty plane. And we jumped in in the hangar, and he backed us out. And we had just a short little way before we got to the taxiway, and I, we never actually got to fly. But in that short way, he looked at me and said, Scott, if I have a heart attack, you need to know how to land this plane. So he proceeded to give me a five-minute flight lesson and was going over the yoke and all the dials and buttons, and it was just, you know, coming at me like a fire hose. And we got to the taxiway, and he looked over at me, and he said, you got it? I said, no, I do not have it at all. (laughs) So I've been given the, the task of going over stewardship, biblical stewardship, all in one sermon. And the number of scriptures that I would have to cover is impossible. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break this down into three simple areas that we're going to cover. A glorifying God uh, with money through our church, glorifying God through our lives with money, and common questions and objections. So it's a very simple outline, but we're going to go through so many scriptures. However, if you want, we will end in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, a very famous passage of the widow giving her penny to uh, the Lord in an offering. Now, when we, received, when we got to the edge of the runway, before we took off, and again, we never did, I said, stop, let me ask a question of you, of my friend. And he looked at me like he couldn't believe that I was questioning him. And I said, of all these dials, gauges, and buttons in front of me, If you have a heart attack and I have to take control, are any of them so critical that if I touch them, it will send us plummeting to certain death? And he was kind of offended. I could tell it as, look, and then all of a sudden the light came on. And he goes, oh, well, there is this one switch right here. It's the fuel cutoff switch. (laughs) You don't want to turn that off. That could be bad. Like, well, thanks a lot. And to this day, every time I get in a plane with any friend, I always ask, where is the fuel cutoff switch? Because I don't want to hit that. And today, if we spend any amount of time and really hover over anything, it will be on the questions and concerns, because that's how I learn. So the, the topic today is very simple on giving our money to the Lord and glorifying Him, but it's more the bad teaching or the, the poor teaching over the years where we have questions and concerns that I want to spend time on at the very end. So we will do our best to get there today. On our church website, this is our church covenant. If you considered being a member of our church, this is what you are agreeing to as a part of the covenant. It says, under stewardship, As an act of worship, we acknowledge that all we have comes from and belongs to God. Therefore, we give generously to support the work and the mission of the church, help widows and those in need, and manage all the resources that God has entrusted to us, time, talents, and finances, in a way that glorifies God. If you wish to be a member of this church, that is the expectation. And now 
is my job to do the best I can to explain biblically where that comes from. First and foremost, Ephesians 5.25-30, through 30, glorifying God through our church with money. Husbands, love your wives as, and notice this, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus about husbands and wives, but he uses the analogy of what Christ did for the church. He says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Our motivation today is being built off the sermon of last week in which Pastor Keith explained the very first thing that we expect for you as a member if you're going to join here is to love the Lord and to love one another. And our motives continue in love. Yes, we acknowledge everything that we have is of God and given to us by God, but we also, as we mature, are motivated beyond just ownership. We are motivated by love and the, the love with which Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. This is important as well. I was saved at a youth camp. I grew in maturity at a church, but one of the most maturing times of my life was at college in a, in a parachurch ministry, a collegiate ministry. And beyond that, over the years, I've taken many mission trips with other parachurch organizations. And if you'll notice when you're a part of those organizations, if you've ever been a part of them, they're incredibly impactful. And over time, as I've thought about giving to the Lord, there is a occasion in which I've considered giving to those ministries rather than the church because they were seemingly so impactful and so utilizing the money in which they received. But I want to caution you, those parachurch ministries, as good as they are, are not the church. Christ did not die for a school. He did not die for a mission-sending agency. He did not love those agencies. And hear me, those, those agencies and groups do a good work, but if the mission of the church was just simply to, to send missionaries around the world, it would be comparatively easy. If the mission of the church was just to have a Bible study, it would be very easy. If the mission of the church was just to gather together and worship, it would be super simple. But notice this, and this may be why some have really not been as excited about giving to the church as other ministries. Notice he continues in verse 26 that he, Jesus, might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is the most difficult thing that exists. Literally, Scripture uses the terms of spiritual warfare. It describes our life in the sanctification process as dying to self, crucifying self daily and following Christ, putting off the old self, putting on the new self, abiding in God's word, being transformed and renewed in our thinking and our minds, taking thoughts captive to obey Christ. And that is almost immeasurable and takes a long, long period of time, yet it is a glorious trip but it is not as exciting. Not only that, but it occurs in an arena in which you, yes, have wonderful fellow believers, but oftentimes you have unbelievers, false teachers, bad teachers, all sorts of things. So do not waver 
Biblically, the church is the body of Christ. He finishes in verse 29, for no one who has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. This church and every other biblical church is the body of Christ. And it is through this group that we give an honor to the Lord biblically. So don't be swayed. There is a place for those parachurch organizations, and they have accomplished a great deal, but the church is the body of Christ. Well, under that, we have biblical obligations, biblical opportunities, and warnings. Let me help you think about this entire sermon this way as well. Imagine you have a kid who's going off to college, and she comes back. She was responsible for finding her own place to stay while she was in school, and she comes back and says, I just signed a contract on a mansion has five-car garage, multiple pools, servants, even a yard guy. It is awesome, Mom. And you ask her, you're going like, how much are you obligated to pay? And she says, well, I don't know. I'm just going to pray about it. It doesn't work like that. And finances in the church, believe it or not, don't work like that as well. If you've come here today and you're wondering, how much should I give or how should I give, that's not the way we start with finances. We start with our obligations. And the Bible outlines three basic biblical obligations that the church is responsible for. And that may be surprising that it's so few. First and foremost, monetarily support the church's ministers and laborers. I'm going to give you some verses that just basically touch on this, can't explain them. I just want to give you a little biblical support for it so you can take them home and study perhaps yourself. It says, 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What is he referring there to double honor? 1 Timothy 5, 18, the following verse clarifies, Paul says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So if you're a part of a biblical church that has a pastor and you choose to employ that pastor, once you make that commitment, you are obligated to it. And that's a lot of money. So if you see in budgets over the years, the salaries of pastors that the church is committed to as a big part of the budget, that's biblical. But once again, you don't have to have that if you have not committed to it. One of the incredibly neat things, as you see here in these obligations, is they vary from church to church. And no matter the persecution, no matter the country, the church will survive. It can survive on almost nothing or it can survive on all the generosity that the church can possibly muster to do wonderful things. And it has done so throughout the centuries. The second biblical obligation is to monetarily support the church's godly widows who are without family. 1 Timothy 5.16 says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let not the church be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Very, very simple. Ladies, if you think the Proverbs 31 lady sets a high standard, these Timothy widows, well, they don't hold, the Proverbs 31 lady doesn't hold a candle to them. They are incredibly godly. So there are very few widows, but this church does that very thing. We seek to support our godly widows who are without family. Thirdly, monetarily 
support the saints in times of calamity. Now, I've made these points especially long for a reason. Over the years, people have sought all sorts of ways to get out of giving to the Lord. As senior pastor, I've heard them all. One lady came up to me and she said, Scott, I've decided I don't really have the gift of generosity. I have the gift of encouragement. I said, well, that's okay. She goes, from now on, I'm no longer going to give to the church. I'm just going to write notes of encouragement. And I said, well, thank you. Would you mind coming by Monday? And she said, why? Well, I need to call the electric company. I'm going to have you explain to them that you're not going to give money. You're just going to send them notes of encouragement. (laughs) She didn't like that. Now, quite frankly, I knew her quite well. I wouldn't say that to just anyone But there are a lot of crazy excuses out there. So I want to be very clear. We are obligated to monetarily support certain things. And the third one is poor saints in times of calamity. Specifically, the widows are to be enrolled, but they're the only group the New Testament paints as where the church is obligated to support a group ongoing. The the solution to being poor is work. Imagine that. But there are certain times where calamity comes, whether it's fire, whether it's famine, whether it's war, uh, health, those sorts of things where the church is obligated to step in and help brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, Paul talks to the Corinthian church about a collection that they had agreed to participate in. And he says this, now concerning the collection for the saints, he's referring to the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering under famine and likely persecution. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, these were obligations. He didn't want to extract it from them. So in our giving and in preparing for our obligations, we are to do so thoughtfully and save up for it, I believe, is a proper application. Then there are biblical opportunities as a church, and this is the fun thing. These are the parachurch organizations that I talked about earlier. Philemon 17, Apostle Paul writing says, So if you consider me your partner, this is a word the Apostle Paul uses time and time again, The church has the opportunity and the obligation to make decisions to participate in ministry beyond the walls, beyond its location, and to partner with certain ministries. Some ministries they will choose to partner with, others they will not. Philippians 1, 3 through 5 says this, Paul, again, writing to the Philippian church, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This church participates in all sorts of partnerships, but hear this. We give to those partnerships through the church because the church provides protection. Many of these ministries are solid, but there are many ministries out there that are not. And in the church, you have people with the gift of discernment, with the gift of patience, with the gift of administration, with individuals that are knowledgeable about doctrine and theology in which they can test and evaluate. When you begin to move outside the church and give to those organizations, you lose that sort of protection. So with the church, once we're committed, both in our obligations and our opportunities, we are there.
That is what we commit to, to give generously and cheerfully on a regular basis. But there is a warning, multiple warnings. We have a chance to cover one. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 9. Again, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, who was pastoring the church at Ephesus. If anyone teaches, so Paul's warning, there will be future people that raise up in a leadership position of teaching. Very critical. You just can't always trust teachers. You have to evaluate them. And he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching that accords with godliness. Remember that sanctification I was talking about? With godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining, and note this, this applies to so many churches today, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. One of the most popular false doctrines that is being perpetrated today is that you achieve godliness, and as if you're godly, you give, and if you give, you get rich. It's called the health and wealth gospel, or the prosperity gospel. They've utilized the gospel of Jesus Christ as a means to attempt to get rich and to teach others to do the same. Paul warns against it. Do not believe it. That is not the mission of our church. It never has been, never will be. Well, glorifying God with our lives, with money. What obligations do we have there? Three simple ones. Work, if able. Monetarily provide for your family and pay your taxes. That's a sore subject right there. Now, let's go through them quickly. Work, if able. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. For even when uh, we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's the solution for poverty, work. It's a strange word to a lot of people today, but that is the biblical view. If you are able, you are to work. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Second obligation individually is monetarily provide for your family. How is that different than the first? Simple. Over the years, I've met a lot of people who have had jobs, good jobs, but they waste a lot of the money on addictions, gambling, alcohol, drugs. And long before the paycheck gets home to their family, it's gone. And they're working and working, and their family is suffering. Or, in many cases, they have this false belief that whatever company or whatever idea they have, they chase it, that it's going to be the next get-rich-quick scheme that they're pursuing. And they're claiming they're working, yet it never provides any money for food and clothing for their family, and their family suffers. The Bible says you must monetarily provide for your family. If your job's not cutting it, get a different job. Start a new business. Do something different. First Timothy 5, 8 says this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We bring reproach upon the name of God when we do not provide for our family. Again, this is outside of calamity, of health and sickness and, and wars. We're talking about everyday 
responsibilities. Finally, Romans 13, 7, under paying your taxes. Just a lovely topic that I get to cover today. Pay to all what is owed to them. Not what they want, not what they demand, but what is owed. So after all the lawyers and all the fighting is finished, pay them what's owed. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom is honor is owed. But here's the neat thing. Once you get past the obligations, you get the biblical opportunities individually. And this is where it flows from the love of God and what he did for us and our love for him. Biblical opportunity, number one, is to give generously. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. This is one of my favorite passages that I will cover this morning. It says this, As for the rich in this present age, which is pretty much all of us, Uh, biblical contentment is if you have clothing and if you have food, you should be content. Anything beyond that is abundance. So I, I think most of us here would probably fall in this category. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I believe this is actually the key to our passage in Mark here shortly. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's really easy to put your faith in money rather than in God. But if you can manage to do that, you have great faith. Give generously. Number two, give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says this, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. How much must you give? When should you give? As you've decided in your heart, according to the Apostle Paul, in dealing with a special offering for the saints in Jerusalem. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Have you ever walked by someone and said, cheer up, and they just frown at you? (laughs) unfortunately we've all had days like that so to say that this is a command is is true but also to say that it is an obligation but beyond that an opportunity I believe is also true because it's hard to command someone to be cheerful right it's hard to command someone to look on the bright side of things it's hard to command someone to be generous when they're not the point is this as you take care of the basics and develop a habit of of following through with your obligations, the opportunity to exist to really reflect and say, who am I? Have I really trusted in God with all my heart? Have I given him everything? Have I I renounced everything according to Luke, the very foundation that is required to be a disciple of Christ? If I have, then I can trust in him. I don't have to live by putting my faith in money, but I can learn to give generously and cheerfully, glorifying God in my life. Well, we get to the common questions and concerns, and this is the fun part. What about tithing? Do I tithe pre-tax or after tax? Well, there's that tax question again. Let me just briefly go through Deuteronomy 14. It's so straightforward. It doesn't need a lot of explanation. The short version is this. You cannot tithe biblically even if you want it. Let's read. And before the Lord our God, in the place he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain. 
not money, grain, of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of, of, of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way to, is too long for you, so that you may not be able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money. And bind it up, the money, in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. So you're spending the tithe on yourself after you've converted it to money and now you're going back to oxen and sheep and wine and strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So you're eating your own tithe and you're having a party rejoicing. A lot of poor teaching has been done on tithing. Short version is... There were multiple tithes. It was always the increase of the produce of the ground that the Lord God had given Israel. And it was done so to honor and glorify him and support the Levites. We are not under the old covenant. We are not Israel. We are under the new covenant. And we could not tithe biblically even if we wanted to. We, under the New Testament, give generously. We give cheerfully and we supply and support the obligations that the church has committed to, and we support our families. That is a New Testament view of giving. Well, what other sorts of questions and concerns do we have? Number one, I tithe my time instead of money. I've had someone tell me that. Can you imagine Pastor Keith getting back when he gets his pay stub and he looks in there and it's about half the amount it normally is, but there's a little note from our finance director and it says, George agreed to spend 10 hours serving in children's ministry this week rather than giving. So good luck, Pastor Keith. I've been a senior pastor. I might take that deal. Right? Children's workers are hard to get, right? But it's not biblical, so we don't do that. That's not a thing. It's not an either or, but a both and. Another objection, the church doesn't need my money. Again, it doesn't need your money. But whatever church that you're part of, whatever obligations and opportunities is taken on, you are responsible for. The church isn't using the money I give like I want. Well, good luck. I've never been a part of a church that has. We all have varying opinions, but is it at the basic foundation, can you agree as a church and as a body, as a whole, on a budget or a ministry plan? And the answer to that is yes. Any individual is not in control of all the money. I have to save for my grandchildren's inheritance. This might not be on your radar, but is an incredibly popular verse that is driving the Dave Ramsey train of Financial Peace University. We have any graduates in here? Oh yeah, we have a few. This is his favorite passage. It drives everything. It's this idea that you have to work one, two jobs and save millions and millions of dollars. And someday, if you're a good person, you will leave an inheritance to your children's children. Let's read this. Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Apparently, he's right. Wait, it says, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. That kind of throws a curve into it, right? So what is he saying? Is he saying that we have to work and, and leave a great deal of money to a grandchild that we might not even trust yet? Why not just wait till the sinner's wealth is uh, gone and apparently you, you get that. You can kick back and not work. Well, maybe there's a different option and a different interpretation. How's this sound? A good man, which is highlighted again at the end of the second half of the verse as righteous, a good man is someone who follows the Lord, takes on the obligations, 
works, provides for his family, saves, and teaches it to his children. And the money that he has, the wealth that he has, not additional money that he's going to try to earn and, and, and do all that he can to achieve, that money will stay with his child because he raised his child up in a godly way. And he knows how to handle money. And that child will do the same. And therefore, his children's children will have an inheritance. They will have something. It might not be a lot, but because they have a godly example and a godly family that is doing that, they will receive an inheritance. Not only that, but frankly, if Dave Ramsey's interpretation is right, then poor people can't be righteous. And I know a lot of poor people, and many of them are very righteous indeed. Also, the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. What does that mean? Well, you have to remember, these aren't promissory. They're proverbial, general wisdom, like don't poke the bear. You might get bit. Well, this is the idea, and many of us have relatives like this. Someone who is a sinner, they don't behave properly with money. They're always spending it on foolish things. And it seems like no matter how hard they work, they are always poor. And they are always jealous of you if you're a sibling that you have money and they don't. And you're trying to explain to them, I'm not doing anything special. I'm just working and handling my money in a godly way. And they never have any. That's the idea that a sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous, I would suggest. And finally, we get to Mark chapter 12, verse 41 and 42. We'll close with this. The popular version over the years was this was highlighting a a command in the way that it was inferred that we are to give everything as a godly widow had given everything she had to live on to the temple in Jesus' day, which was quickly set aside because there is no command in the passage. Then another interpretation came about recently among many popular um, preachers was this was a commentary, much like the, the health and wealth prosperity gospel today, the Pharisees of the day were taking advantage of the poor widow, and this is actually a passage condemning those that would do that. I would suggest neither is accurate. I would suggest simply this, and you can hear this up front and then read it and decide if I'm right. God does measure the quantity of our giving. It's undeniable. But he measures it through the lens of our faith. Let's read it. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Notice there's no condemnation there. And that's what's so tricky about this. We want the guy with the black hat or the white hat, do this, don't do that, and this is not the teaching. Jesus challenges the listener, his disciples, to listen and learn. Verse 42, And a poor widow came in and put two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, the poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let me see if I can explain it to you like this. I have been poor. I've never been third world poor, but I've been American poor. My parents raised me up in a middle class home, but when I got out, I discovered I was poor. I got my first job and I was making below poverty level wages. I had all the things that I needed, my apartment and everything else, got my very first paycheck, paid my rent, paid all my obligations, and at the end, I discovered this. 
The bank that I was banking at required $5 remain at any given time to keep the bank account open. I had five days left before I'd get paid again, and I had a total of 85 cents to my name. After essentially 16 years of study, all the achievements that I thought I had achieved, I had 85 cents. I was shocked. I was saddened. I was, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, how can I have ended up at that point? How, how could I have been such a failure? Baby step number one that both, I believe, the widow and myself learned. Years ago, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I gave him everything. I trusted him with my life. But over time, I had slowly bought into the American dream that I was going to put my trust in education, get a good job, get a lot of money, and save for retirement. Just almost imperceptibly. And I realized I had been putting my faith in money. And you know what was so stupid? 85 cents. (laughs) That penny of that widow, that wasn't going to save her. It wasn't going to keep her from poverty. It wasn't going to save her home. She knew that. And I believe she figured out the same thing. And that's the great thing about being poor is it forces you to realize that you're entirely dependent upon God, that he provides. And there will be times in your life maybe where you have nothing, but you have all that you need. You have God. And baby step number two then comes into play. It was super easy for me that Sunday, to take that 85 cents and worship God and put it all in the offering plate as it passed by. It wasn't going to get me anything. It wasn't even going to get me a Big Mac. I got to fast for a few days, and that was good. That widow knew the same thing. It wasn't going to save her. I don't think we should read into the text that she was being deprived or manipulated. I think she loved the Lord, and she gave all that she had to live on. Because she knew that her ultimate trust and hope was in God. If you're poor here today, you're never too poor to give and honor God. It doesn't matter the quantity. God sees it, but he measures it through the lens of faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you so very much. I must confess today, I didn't have great faith when I put in that 85 cents it was just baby faith but at the same time I like probably many here even though you don't command it I've probably never since that time given all that I have to you joyfully and cheerfully Lord help us not necessarily to do that but just ask the question would we where is our hope where is our faith Help us find the joy and generosity and the cheerfulness of relying completely on you, whether we're a millionaire or have nothing. We love you and praise you and thank you for all that you provide and above all else, for who you are and giving us Jesus, that we might have hope in him and in his blood as a payment for our sins, the ultimate gift that you've given us. In Christ's name I pray this, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, 
visit us online at fbckeller.org.